This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I want to get your opinion on on a survey that I saw this morning. That uh, well, I, I'm trying to make heads or tails of this thing. Uh, this was done by Main Street uh, Research. That's um, one of the news agencies. Uh, uh, decided uh, post media decided to en- enroll these guys and get them to do some work and basically they wanted to talk about the safest cities in Canada. Uh, they did not include Hamilton in the survey, interestingly enough. Although you know, Hamilton's name has come up time and time again when you talk about street safety and community safety and things of that nature. So if they're not going to talk about it, well, you and I are. Uh, and here's here's the way this was breaking down. They're not talking about crime statistics. Because that can tell you one story, but you know what that's like. When you start looking at numbers, after a little bit, your eyes start to glaze over, and you say, well, you know what, that doesn't really reflect how people feel. Well, you want to find out how people feel, then you do shows like this and simply ask you to call and say, how do you feel about this? According to this Main Street research uh, survey that was done, Canadian cities where people feel the most safe. The number one city where people feel the safest, and this is for residents, not just for people visiting, but for residents, is Ottawa. So they say. That's the number one city. Second is Charlottetown, PEI. Third is Victoria. Fourth is Moncton. Fifth is St. John's, uh, Newfoundland. Edmonton, Alberta. Then Halifax. Then Vancouver. Then Regina. Then Calgary. Quebec City. Saskatoon. Montreal, Toronto is 14th, and Winnipeg is 15th. They say it's the the least safe. That's how residents feel. Because um, perception is reality, right? I mean, you can talk statistics until the you know you're blue in the face, but it's how people feel about a community. And we've talked about some incidents uh, on the program over the years about things that have happened here in this community. Uh, there have been shootings. There have been murders. There have been some rather rowdy areas of town. There are some sections of the town that people, quite frankly, still say, well, I wouldn't want to go there. I don't feel safe there. Downtown was that way. I guess in some people's minds it still is. But I want to find out from you. It's a basic question. No matter what part of the city that you live or visit or work, do you consider Hamilton to be a safe city? Here's how you can reach us, 905-645-3221. That's 905-645-3221. If you're on a cell phone, by the way, that's a toll-free number at star 9900. You can reach us by email, bkelly at 900chml.com, and on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. Do you consider Hamilton to be a safe city? You know, there were times, and there have been stories, even in the national media, about how unsafe Hamilton has been, about crime rates and about some of the things that are happening. And I guess, you know, there was the the shooting at the Musitano household on St. Clair, the the shots that went through the the living room window. And I know I heard from at least one of the neighbors around there that says, boy, that's not the sort of thing you want to have happening in your neighborhood. Well, of course it isn't. There were times I can remember back when I was going to to college, at Mohawk College, I, I can remember, this is back in the 1970s, obviously, there was a story, and I think it was in McLean's Magazine, national publication, that said that Barton Street in Hamilton was the most dangerous city in Canada. I'm serious. That you did not want to go down Barton Street, you just, especially at night. I did, as a, as a matter of fact. I guess I kind of took exception to that and said, well, you know, so a friend of mine and, and myself, actually about 7 o'clock one night, we started at uh, James Street, James and Barton, and walked all the way down to Sherman and Barton. 
and said, well, hey, we didn't get mugged. I mean, you know, but that was perception at the time. And it's not just the downtown core. It could be any part of town. In your neighborhood, in your community, do you feel safe? Is Hamilton a safe city? The survey, the, the people at Main Street Research didn't think they needed to include Hamilton in the survey, but I do because this is my town. This is our town. And I want to know how you feel about it. And I want to know how you feel about how safe you are here. Do you feel safe walking down the street? Do you feel dr safe driving in the street? Do you feel safe if your kids are going out at night that they're going to be okay? Are there some areas of the city that you just avoid because you're concerned about public safety? Let's talk about this. 905-645-3221, star 9900. I'm going to get your read on this and get a thumbnail sketch as to how you feel. Uh, and, and I don't want stats. I, I want your opinion, okay? Because you're the one that walk the streets and drive the streets and live in these communities and shop in these communities and work in parts of this community and in these neighborhoods. Do you feel safe here in Hamilton? In Winnipeg, they say apparently not so much. There are areas of that town and people are living and working and say, no, we don't feel safe. Not just at night, but anytime. That's interesting. How do you view Hamilton? Are you safe? Do you feel safe here in Hamilton? Let me go to your phone call. Sandra, you're first up on this. How are you doing this morning, Sandra? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. You rattled off a bunch of cities there in Charlottetown, the one that kind of caught my attention. I've never been to Charlottetown, so how could I possibly tell you whether I feel safe for living in Hamilton or living in Charlottetown. But I will tell you, I did. Go, I go to Toronto on a regular basis, and I go to Niagara Falls City on a regular basis. And when I went to Toronto, I, I really do feel uneasy. And I'm in my 50s, and I grew up in Toronto. But when I was in Scarborough Town Centre, was on the way to an appointment, and I kind of wandered around Scarborough Town Centre, and I've got to tell you, I felt pretty uneasy. Why? When I got back to Hamilton, it wasn't the ethnic, uh, you know, the, the sea of ethnicity. It wasn't any of that. I just felt uneasy from some of the shenanigans that, that I was watching. Well, I got back to Toronto. It was a day trip. I got back to Hamilton from a day trip. And the next day, I don't know whether someone got shot or someone got stabbed, but it was in Scarborough Town Centre. So, you know, it might be perception, or it might just be, you know, you hear about Jane and Finch, it's, I wouldn't go up there anymore, and you hear about Barton Street, and I've walked along Barton Street, I used to live on Barton Street for five years, routinely you'd see fights break out, especially around the bars, uh, routinely you'd see the girls out on the street, and it, there's a there's there's an altercation happening. But do those I, stories? I, I, those are because I, I remember all of those. And, and from a historical perspective, you're absolutely right, Sandra. But is it like that now? I don't know because I uh, two years ago I said I'm not living east of James anymore, and I'm not living anywhere near Barton. Now I'm up at Vic Park uh, near Dundurn Castle. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen cops. I haven't seen any issues. No fights. No bums passed out on the, you know, on the in the park. Nothing like that. So I feel particularly safe in Hamilton. We went down to Niagara Falls yesterday to the casino. Came across a couple of guys that were passed out, probably drinking, and this was at nine or ten in the morning. 
they weren't causing any trouble. I felt particularly safe down there, and especially when you're near a casino, they don't want any trouble down there. Yeah, that's all public relations. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, the, the perception seems to have changed. Sandra, thanks so much for kicking off the conversation today. There were pockets and there were areas and there were neighborhoods where people just said, I, I don't think I feel safe. I don't think I want to go there. And downtown was one of them for the longest time. Now, and, and we'll talk to this about Chief Gert when he comes in here in a little while, but you know, to their credit, police services did something about that. You know, they 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 brought out the the downtown core team. You know, those guys in the uh, the bright fluorescent jackets and they uh, and those officers, uh, men and women, are patrolling there day and night. And uh, you talk to people that work and live downtown right now, and they say, yeah, things are better. Things are there are still incidents, sure, there are from time to time, but they feel more safe than they did before. Barton Street, I mentioned that that's a story that went back to the nineteen seventies. Uh, I'd, I'd like to think that's changed. I mean, there's some, some areas of Barton that are pretty vacant, but I mean, I, I go down there on a fairly regular basis. I don't feel unsafe. It's it's different. I wish there was more activity down there sometimes, but I'm not sure about unsafe. What about you? Where you work, where you live, do you feel safe? Is Hamilton a safe city? They say that Ottawa, this survey here says Ottawa is the safest city in Canada right now, but they didn't even rate Hamilton. Let's do that for you. Hi, Tom. How are you doing this morning? Bill, how are you, sir? Fabulous. First comment, I'm really disappointed we didn't get on the list. I'm really surprised. But uh, I'm, I'm 53. I've lived in Hamilton all my life. I work in Toronto. Uh, I have two kids in their 20s. I feel absolutely safe everywhere I go. My daughter and I go to the market every Saturday. We, we walk up and down James Street. We go for dinner uh, on James Street quite a bit. Um, I live on Upper Sherman and Stone Church area. Uh, I've, I've forgotten my to lock my door sometimes before I go to bed. I feel absolutely safe in the Hammer. I love living there. And the one thing I can comment on, when we are downtown, there are there is there's a lot of people walking around with some mental health issues. Um, but other than that, like I feel totally safe. I, I go buy bread on Barton Street sometimes. I don't feel uneasy anywhere in Hammer, anywhere. Well, that that used to be the perception when we were kids. I mean, you know, don't go down James Street at night. Don't go down Barton Street at night. Uh, I don't see that. I mean, there's nightlife down there. I mean, there are bars. And, and to our uh, Sandra's call from a couple of minutes ago, uh, if there are people that are going to spend the night in a bar and get inebriated, yeah, there's a possibility that stuff's going to break out. Uh, that's not necessarily saying it's a bad city, just that, you know, people have to be more careful about those kind of things. And that happens in every city, unfortunately. But I, I don't know that it, it, it necessarily, you know, mandates that you have to say, well, that's a bad area. Stay away from there. I had some clients from Toronto come in about a month ago when they had that cancer run. I don't know if you remember. It was a bike-a-thon from Toronto to Hamilton and then from Hamilton to Niagara Falls. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had two of my clients came in. We went to the restaurant on, on James Street called Born and Raised. They loved it. They loved the city. They felt safe walking it. Uh, they were like totally impressed, and they had that perception. The one guy said to me, "I've been busting your chops about Hamilton for for years." He goes, "I kind of, I got to take it back now." He goes, uh, "Loved every minute of it." And safety was one of the issues that he talked about. He says, "I, I feel totally safe here," so it's a good thing. Tom, thanks so much for the call. Thank you. And James Street used to be like that. There was a time, I guess, back in the '80s. I was working in Toronto downtown, at a radio station there. And and I would go down to what Leuna, well, it's Leuna Station now. It used to be the CN Station, and take the train in. But I would have to take the bus back in the afternoon, and so, and it used to drop me off around City Hall. I'd have to walk all the way back down James Street to get my car, and uh, it was boarded up. It was barren, and it was a little I don't know scary necessarily, 
But, you know, it was just, it was not comfortable. But it's lively now. There are fabulous restaurants down there. There's activity down there. And and one of the first things you learn about communities, and especially from downtown core areas, is turn the lights back on and get activity going down there. And and that creates, I think, a sense of, of safety, and people feel better about about the community if you see something like that going on. Well, what about you, Will? What do you think? Is Hamilton a safe city? 905-645-3221, start 9900. Hi, Dave. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thank you, Bill. How are you? Great, thanks. Good, yeah. I think, by and large, Hamilton is a safe city. And, and to further touch on what you're saying, I was downtown last Saturday, and uh, I there was all kinds of people downtown. I was actually shocked how many people were downtown. I went down even Main Street, and a lot of the restaurants there were packed. I mean, it, was, it seemed to be, it's coming back. There's no question about it. Um, I can remember going downtown in the 90s and it being a ghost town. And, uh, yeah, safe, safe, safe city. I think we should be, should have been on that list. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not naive, but Hamilton is a safe city and especially for its size. I mean, if you can prepare, I mean, I know it's a, not an American city, but if you just go across the border to Buffalo, they have hundreds of murders a year. And so as opposed to other Canadian cities, I, I would think we're probably, if they rated us as a safe city, we'd probably be probably uh, on, uh, up the upper end of that list, no doubt. And, and listen, I, yeah, we don't want to look at this with rose-colored glasses. I mean, there have been some incidents. You remember, I guess it was about two summers ago, uh, there was well, at least one murder downtown in the North End, uh, and and then there was a, well, a midday shooting that on a Sunday morning, you remember, just around noontime, yeah. around uh, Victoria Avenue and Main Street, and uh, that's, that's scary. I mean, you think in our city, that thing's going on. But they don't happen that often, and, and of course you hear about you know these home invasions. The, but police will tell you that those are what they call targeted. In other words, those um, in a lot of cases are bad guys going after bad guys. And again, you don't want to have any of them. Well, one is one too many. But but you know the, those those color people's opinions on something, and they say, well, you know that makes us an unsafe city. But you know, I, I just get the sense that there's a much better attitude right now than there was in this city. You're right. I mean, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of concern about the downtown core. And I'm not saying, hey, everything is beautiful now, but I mean, it's a lot better than it was, and it's getting better every day. We're definitely headed in the right direction. And the fact that these daylight shootings shock us here in Hamilton so much is just proof that these things don't happen very often. Exactly. Thanks for the call, Dave. Appreciate it. 645-3221, start 9900. Uh, the Main Street survey here, poll says, well, uh, Ottawa is the safest city in Canada. In people's perception. On email, bkelly900chml.com, Phil says, considering we have half a million people in the city, I find Hamilton to be very safe compared to other major cities like Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. Feeling safe in Hamilton. Phil, thanks so much for the email on that one. Frank, you're next on the program. How are you this morning? Hi, Frank. Hi, how are you? Hi, go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to comment on Hamilton. Uh, I come here about 30 years ago, and uh, they're right. Downtown was a little scary. You wouldn't want to be down there at night. You wouldn't want to be sitting down there. But now it's it's totally been transformed. I, I go downtown pretty much every night. I go for a walk. I live at uh, Wentworth and Cannon area. And uh, So where you do you go, when you walk at night, where do you go? I, I basically walk to King William down to uh, May, uh, King Street, and then I sit at Gore Park for a little while, and I, and I make my way back. The, uh, the transformation of Gore Park is incredible. Uh, you have families down there now. You have kids down there. You, every night I go down there, it doesn't matter what, what day of the week it is. There's all kinds of people down there. We've got all kinds of new restaurants, all kinds of new cafes. All these places used to be boarded up at one time. Mm-hmm. Now now, now we've got people going to them, and 
downtown, it doesn't matter what night you go downtown. There's lots of people. It's busy. People seem to be happy. Like the millennials from Toronto, it almost seems like it's taken over downtown Hamilton. I'm from a small city, Sault Ste. Marie. So it was a, it was a big transformation when I first come. But I sat downtown not too long ago, and I thought about 30 years ago when I come, and I said I wouldn't be sitting here 30 years ago, and now I'm sitting there, and you're watching all the people. Gore Park is just fabulous now. And also, you know, Hamilton does have a lot of unfortunate people, but they're not bad people. Unfortunate people aren't bad. They're just unfortunate. We don't know why they're there or how they're there. You know, if you actually sat down and talked to them, they'd probably really, uh, feel sorry for that person and wonder how they even got through life, if you know what I mean. We used to have a bed and breakfast at Barton and Victoria, and uh, we serviced the hospital quite a bit. And we used to run into that trouble. Somebody would book a room, and they wouldn't show up. And finally, we figured it out that people would tell them, oh, you can't be staying at Barton and Victoria. You know how bad that area is? There's all kinds of people around there. It's scary, right? Well, it, I'm sorry. It's just unfortunate people. You, you can't look at them as they're scary people. So they don't dress well, and they don't look as well as we do, but they're not bad people. Trust me, I, I lived there for almost 20 years, and we never had any trouble at all from anybody. Yeah, and I think that's part of that idea about perception. Frank, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, there are people that have mental health issues, and, and, and some of them, of course, are getting assistance, and, and there are places where they can get medication, and some choose to live on the street uh, for a variety of reasons, and, and there are social service agencies that reach out. Uh, and, and that can be somewhat problematic in panhandlers, and that can be somewhat problematic to some people too, but I don't necessarily know if you should equate that to being unsafe. Uh, and I think some people do that anyway, and that may actually lead to some of that perception or misperception. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's time for the Chiefs Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is here in studio to answer your questions, uh, to uh, uh, listen to your comments about uh, public safety and about policing here in the Hamilton community. Uh, we'll open the lines up in a couple of seconds, but if you want to call right now and get into the queue, by all means do so. Uh, 905-645-3221. That's our number, 905-645-3221. Toll free at star 9900. You can reach us by email, bkelly at 900chml.com. And, of course, on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. Uh, listen, every time we do this, uh, we get a, a plethora of phone calls in the last two or three minutes. We can't get to them all. Uh, and that's always regrettable. Call now if you've got a question or comment uh, for Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gurd, and we'll get you on just as quickly as we can. How are you doing today? Very well. I haven't seen each other with holidays and everything else. It's been a few weeks since uh, since we've had you on the program and had you back here again. And there's there's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about, uh, especially uh, summertime, although it seems to be waning uh, with the kind of weather that we've been having over the little while. But there's always increased concern about public safety, et cetera, during the summer hours and summer days. But I'll, just before we get into some of the other stuff, because I want to talk about uh, Project Phoenix and some of the other things that have gone on in the last couple of weeks. But let's uh, head back to the conversation we had in the last segment, and I had about safety and about the perception of safety. Now, these are not the crime stats that come out uh, every year that, that uh, by the way, Hamilton usually does very well in. Uh, but those are numbers. But this is people's idea. This is their perception of, of how they feel. And like I say, it was regrettable the survey that was published by Main Street uh, Research I didn't even conclude Hamilton. I don't know why. But uh, we get some pretty positive response uh, from our listeners uh, about uh, whether or not they feel safe here in this community. 
which I think to a large extent is, is uh, I think, a testimony to the work that Hamilton Police Services have done to try to do this. Because you and I grew up in this town, and you know that there was a time there where there were some areas where you said, you know, don't go there, don't hang out there, especially at night, for heaven's sakes. That's changing. Agreed. And, and uh, some listeners may not know, we implemented the Neighborhood Safety Project, which actually grew out what was called the COP2000 Project. And that was really looking at response to neighborhood concerns. So some of what you're seeing in the Toronto rewrite of how to do neighborhood policing, um, and not to be self-congratulatory, but we'd done work on that, largely through uh, uh, Superintendent John Petz at the time, and looking at how can we respond on a neighborhood basis to crime issues, quality of life issues within our neighborhood. And that happened and was implemented between 2000 and 2006. One of those big um, things that happened out of that was a... uh, a beat crime manager, and you may have dealt with them when you were a counselor, uh, for those nagging quality of life issues, or it could be things in the parks, whatever the particular issue is for the community. And they're a huge conduit up to us, both to address the issue, but also as a response at a divisional level. And there's many other facets to that, but um, we've been focused on that kind of neighborhood safety project focus for some time, but also, as you know, with the previous chief, with the deployment of action downtown, the high visibility of our officers. We now have the mounted patrol unit, which is uh, both action and uh, MPU or uh, the uh, mounted patrol unit patrol both in the downtown core, but also Concession Street. Oh, they're all over the place. I saw one of them in Ancaster the other day. Correct. Way, way up uh, near uh, the Egg and I. Actually, you would see the takeout window at Wendy's. I don't know. It's kind (laughs) of odd to see a horse up there. He wasn't really there, but that's where the horse was at the time. But it was kind of odd, but I thought, yeah, they're all over the place. Yeah, and what they're responding to, both of those uh, areas, and it's uh, really following the original strategy, was where there's um, uh, high enforcement needed or a response because of some uh, public perception of safety, we deploy in the area. One of the things you may remember is uh, some of the sexual assaults along the Bruce Trail. Mm -hmm. So when you've got things like the action officers wear those bright yellow jackets or on bikes, they may be walking, you've got the mounted patrol, high visibility, and also, uh, and we've made significant arrests this year, for example, in relation to some of those sexual assaults through information that we gathered from the public while we're out doing that work. So it's not only the preliminary response to the problem, but also the follow-up. And then, you know, we get information from the public. It's so pivotal. I know when they, you see the crime shows, everything seems to be based on forensics and, uh, you know, the CSI shows. But in my experience, uh, you solve crimes through information. The information comes from people. We know that the people are concerned about the safety and want to assist us when they do so. That lets us solve crimes. I, 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 mean, I don't want this to just be a whole hour of just patting you on the back, but I mean, there is some praise I think that is warranted here. Uh, because as we've seen things develop and situations arise, uh, Hamilton Police Services have been pretty good about responding and being pretty innovative about things like this. You know, we had a real problem a uh, number of years ago, I can remember, with, uh, with in the summertime with kids hanging out in parks and there's a lot of vandalism and some petty crime that was going on and you developed this this patrol system uh, for the summertime uh and actually one of the first i guess uh, police services in ontario to do that and others are emulating you right now and then the downtown units of course like this so uh there's there's a lot of brainstorming i guess goes around when you sit down and start looking at numbers and say we got a problem here how are we going to deal with this but again when you talk about a bill that was as a result of feedback from the community where they said look you know, uh, we don't feel safe coming to the parks for a variety of reasons, whether it's other people hanging out, drinking, uh, causing disturbances, or paraphernalia from drugs, all those things. So uh, as a result of that, back then, we developed the Summer Safe Project, and largely in the summers, that's what we focused on, was going to uh, those areas and recreational areas where, you know, kids use the uh, the playground equipment or the space, 
and uh, really grew out of feedback from the community. So to your point about perceptions of safety, you know, when you look at, oh, you need to solve, you know, the breaking and the robberies, the homicide rate, this is quality of life issues that affect people at a direct level. And we hear it on this show in regard to traffic. These are issues that people are fundamentally concerned about. They may not be impacted by those other areas, not that we don't focus on those too, we do, um, but these are issues of quality of life issues. Well, in, with the park program, what I found interesting about this is a lot of the officers are also the ones that were school liaison officers from September to June. Uh, so they knew uh, of, so, as a matter of fact, sometimes the, the, those young folks that are hanging around in the park, they knew the officer because they see them at school on a semi-regular basis and vice versa. The officer would know some of them and know who maybe the bad apples were and who some of the other ones were. And and the thing I always heard from 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 people in the community was, you know, what the cops were great is they just sometimes they just said, okay, guys, just cool it, be cool, you know, because they need a place to hang around at night too, not at one o'clock in the morning, but but you know sometimes just to get outside the house and everything, as long as they're not making a disturbance. So that that discretion was always a big part of that too. You raised a really good point. I, when I was a regional youth coordinator, right, I said, okay, see eight youth uh, outside, you know, in a mall, is that a gang? Some people say, sure it is. I said, well, maybe you want to listen to a conversation. Maybe they're talking about Xboxes and Playstations and other things like that. It may just be eight kids. Could be a gang, depending on the nature of the conversation. Now we're going to rip this car off. We're going to steal that. They may be related to a gang. But just because you've got youth in an area doesn't necessarily make them a gang. And to your point, it's this balance of needs between the uses and perception. So you're quite right. And the other part, which you named, is when our officers know those people, you can only imagine. If you were 12 and you're in the playground and somebody say you versus, hey, Bill, <laughs> makes a big difference because you go, oh, he already knows who I am. Uh, that's not helpful because I don't have any anonymity. Not that you'd think of that in a 12-year-old phraseology, but you'd think, no, I might get away with this. Um, when we know the kids, when we know what's going on, that really helps. And it's that connection between both the youth community and the larger community to kind of make it work. The the example I always use, and I want to get to your calls in a second, but to, just to, to finish up uh, that topic, I can remember this is many, many years ago in the summertime. Uh, I was by a large park, and uh, I just saw there was something going on. Uh, there was a group of about 15 or 20 youth coming from one area, of, uh, and at the other corner, the other end of the park, another group. And they were both loud, and I thought, wait a second, there's something happening here. Mm-hmm. And I, call, I didn't call 911, but I called uh, the central, uh, yep. the mountain station. I said, look, I'm just, I just identified myself. Here's what's happening. I think this is going to be trouble. Yep. And within about two minutes, there were about eight units that descended upon, the, and it was going to be. I mean, they had bats and everything else. I didn't see that at the time, but as they got closer, and they diffused what could have been a really ugly situation. So they're there, they're there, and they do respond in situations like that. Yeah, and as you've described it, where do you receive that from communications? You know, and I'll call it a layman's perspective, even though I realize, you know, obviously more astute than that when you're seeing that. When you describe that, puts us in a different position to respond to that call and say, yes, and I'd much rather respond to it in a preventative fashion, as you've said, than after math where you've got people injured, uh, offenses, criminal investigations, you know, you don't want that outcome. You want, and can that happen? Sure, it can happen. Uh, but it's, again, the involvement of the citizen to say, that doesn't look right. Hear how it, here's how it is that it doesn't look right. Describe that to communications, and then we know the appropriate response in those cases. And we've talked about that, and I'm sure we'll talk about that as we go through the program today, that uh, police can't be everywhere at once, and, and they still do count on the public to be eyes and ears sometimes to let them know about what's happening. All right, let's go to some phone calls, 905-645-3221, start 9900. Uh, we'll get some emails and tweets up here in a few minutes, too. Your questions, your comments. For Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Uh, Paul, you're first up. Welcome to the program today, Paul. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Good morning, Chief. Good morning, Paul. Bill. 
Um, I got a question regarding the solid white lines. My children cross over, and then they're going to be going to school in a couple weeks. Um, what are the rules, and are they being enforced? You know those solid white lines on a crosswalk over a major street? Uh, the solid white line, usually, if, if I know what you're describing, it's the stop line that's uh, paved on, or, um, painted on the road. In some cases, uh, intersections have them, others they don't. And there are certain requirements under the Highway Traffic Act to stop at various places when you have a stop sign. But when there is a painted solid line, usually half the roadway width, you have to stop your wheels back of that. If you're talking about the actual crosswalk indicators, those solid white lines, uh, yes. if that's what you're talking about, then the pedestrians are supposed to cross within that area. And I know there's some confusion around crosswalk requirements, and we're not talking about pedestrian crossovers that are signed appropriately uh, for an intersection. We had this call last time when I was in. Um, are you required to wait until such time as the pedestrians have fully crossed over? You are on a pedestrian crossover, but you're not necessarily on an intersection that has those crosswalk lines at you know a non-designated pedestrian crossover. So from a common sense perspective, uh, and this is where we went with the, the commentary, uh, particularly with kids, and you never know if they're going to stop, turn around, they think they forgot something. Usually if you give yourself a little bit of room till they're crossed a little further, it's always wise to do that. Do you have to necessarily wait till they get to the other side? You don't. Uh, but it's always exercising common sense. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it does, yes. Thank okay. you very much. Thank yep. you, Paul. Actually, yeah, some people yep. take liberties with that, and I've actually seen some people just kind of get the, you know, nudged by cars that are just in such a big hurry to make that turn. Yeah, for two seconds and the, the distance, and then now you're involved in a collision, and uh, we always used to say as a, a logo, I think the OPP started it, uh, was speeding slows you down. That's because when you get stopped for speeding or you get stopped for these infractions, you're actually not getting your destination. And then let's say even if it's not reported, now you've got an interchange between an angry pedestrian and the driver, and so you're tied up in that, and that sets a tone for the day. Take the two seconds, let them get a little further distance, and make the turn safely. The other rule of thumb that uh, I, I always try to maintain here is that keep in mind the pedestrian has the right of way. Correct. Uh, you know, I, I know you're the car and that's the road, but they're crossing the street. And uh, you can't bump into a pedestrian and say, well, they were moving too slow, or no, they jumped at the last minute. You always have to be careful of that. And another thing people don't recognize as well sometimes is let's say somebody is crossing against the light and the red hand is up and it's telling the pedestrian to stop, and they don't. Um, and you've entered the intersection to make the turn. You can, in fact, wait because you've entered the intersection properly till such time as they clear, even though they're, you know, they're not abiding by the rules. Once you've entered the intersection, if somebody were to drive into you, they are, in fact, at fault because you've entered the intersection properly. So once the light turns red, if that happens, make your turn. It's not prohibited to do so. You have to make sure it's safe and nobody else is stepping out in front of you, um, but you can do that. 905-645-3221, star 9900 for uh, Chief of Police Eric Gert. Rick, you're next on the program. Welcome to the show, Rick. Uh, thank you. Uh, Chief, I've got a question to ask uh, regarding safety. It's actually safety of my daughter. Mm -hmm. She's a, in the medical profession in town. Yep. She has been electronically stalked mm -hmm. to the point where she's got a, bought a brand new phone, not even bought a brand new SIM card, not even synced it, and stuff off her phone has been hacked. Mm -hmm. She's reported it to the Stony Creek Station. Yep. She's reported to the Central Station. She reached out to me in tears one day, so I went to my friends on the OPP, the RCMP, and it boils back down to, you have to start at the local level. Mm -hmm. She goes in there and is like, sorry, we can't help you. What do you do? 
Well, I'm not sure that was the phraseology, and I'm sure your, your daughter wouldn't tell you otherwise. Um, yeah. But again, it depends on the nature of what that harassment is. Can we prove it? What's the source? How are mm-hmm. people being hacked? Is it an acquaintance? Is it somebody else working externally, sometimes from a different country? Given mm-hmm. the circumstances you've described, I'd find that be more or less likely that that was happening. Yeah. But again, if you don't get satisfaction, remember that we have supervisors that you can speak to about those officers, and we have right. a public complaint system. And okay. really, we want to get the investigation done properly. But even if um, you don't get adequate, uh, you know, you think it's a threatening charge, it's not whatever, uh, but you have to know the reasons why that would be or not. I do know that the tech crime investigations can be very detailed and the nature of the hackers, as you know, uh, can be very difficult and time intensive to find out what the source is because of all the ways, and I don't even know them all, that you can hide um, through other addresses and IP addresses and I don't even know what I don't know in this area. I do know that it's emerging on a daily basis and to stay current is difficult, but if she's not getting satisfaction, then uh, yes, by all means, uh, ask to speak to the supervisor and have the case reviewed. Yeah, and that's actually what I told her. Like, uh, she started out in Stony Creek, then she went to the Central Station, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, if you're not getting satisfaction there, go up above. And this is what was told to me by my connection to the OPP. They said, we have to start there, but then, you know, they will ask for our help. Same with the RCMP. They said, you know, it's got to start at your level. That's yeah, and it always goes to the local jurisdiction for investigation. Um, you know, look at the Baratov case. That's a case where uh, the RCMP actually, along with the states, started doing that investigation based on uh, the hacking. And I won't get into the evidence because that's their evidence. Uh, but you can see the nature and the scope of it. Uh, it yep. went to a larger uh, perspective. But again, you know, what's the source of this hacking? Who's the person who's doing it? Does she have suspects in mind? Is there some yep. reason um, why somebody would do it? And to your point, like she just got a SIM card and they already know it. I'm not sure. That sounds a little uh, frightening to me as well. Yeah, like, um, you know, to the point where they are doing profiles on dating sites of her, um, personal pictures yeah. that uh, are being taken off of her phone. Yeah. Like, you know, and I say she's in the medical profession yeah. and she's terrified. You know, she's got to leave her phone on for calls. Yeah. But. You know, when I just saw a presentation of this at the Canadian Chiefs of Police Conference, and again, so I can get acquainted, and the guy who was heading it up, that's his area of expertise. Yep. And what he did, he was a prof, actually, and he'd done his own research on his own name, and yep. he said they had 10 different accounts with his name, Facebook page, family constructed, and he said, I'm in this business. And he said, you know, I'm able to research it, but he said... Like he was just dumbfounded where he's got 10 different accounts. So, you know, again, I don't know what I don't know, uh, but I do know these are possibilities. Rick, I got to let you go. We're just about out of time in this segment, but uh, thanks so much. I want to pick up on that when we come back after the break, though, and talk about uh, cybersecurity and and how police are, are dealing with that and lots more, too, as we continue. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's uh, the Chiefs Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is here in studio. We'll go back to your phone calls in a couple of minutes. 905-645-3221 at star 9900. Email at bkelly at 900chml.com and on Twitter at chml. Bill Kelly. Uh, quick tweet here from uh, Casey. Uh, says, why do police get such a bad rap? The Army are all heroes. I want to thank the police for their team and for your service. Uh, so you can take that one back to the shop, Chief. I appreciate that, yeah. 
Uh, good to hear from that and some of the response that you get. Listen, just before we were dealing with a, a, an individual, a call that uh, was talking about uh, some concerns about cyber safety, basically, cell phones and things like this. And you know that uh, the Dave Place, of course, who does uh, an awful lot of the fraud investigations, uh, among others, he's not the only one on the service that does, but he's been on the show a couple of times in the last few months. Uh, talking about some of the the fraudulent schemes that are going on out there and 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 cybersecurity, it's uh, boy, it's it's like pushing a rock uphill trying to to deal with this stuff, isn't it? Uh, definitely, and it's it's the speed that the technology changes. And we had a quick conversation off uh, off air there, but you know the criminals, if they have access to resources, can upgrade and change and get the new software, get the new hardware. Uh, we have to stay competitive with that. Uh, and as you know, the tech crime world is is evolving so quickly. And as I say, you know, we try and get to conferences and find out what's going on. Dave's an excellent resource, as is our tech crime unit. And often I'll find with submission on grants and things, I wasn't even aware of the technology they're submitting, but I try and find out. Uh, but again, they're the subject matter experts when they're dispensing advice. I know he's been on this show. Uh, just some of those safety tips. Some of them are rudimentary, but some of them aren't. And certainly with scams, and we see it with the CRA scam. Uh, there's another scam. I got two calls last week. Right. I don't know why they're targeting me. Yeah. Uh, I have no money. Okay, people, just <laughs> <laughs> but but they and they sound authentic. Sure, and and that's the whole thing with these fraudulent scams is they catch you off guard, and they try to sound authentic. And 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 Dave was even saying, uh, you know, Officer Place was saying, you know, they've they've got the technology right now where it actually comes up. It looks like a six one three number. Well, yeah. That's Ottawa. I guess that is Canada yeah. Revenue. I better pay attention to this. I, and I know Halton Police yep. are dealing with a similar one that's right, right now. People going door to door saying, "We need to come into your house to check your gas." People don't do that, but you don't know that. Yeah, and we've talked about, I know he has, uh, the verification. You say, well, fine, I will phone back the CRA number that I, f- I look up myself, and then you phone back, and they say no. Uh, even, uh, uh, you know, whether it's the scams at the doors, well, I'm from public health or I'm from this. No, that's fine, you wait out here. I'm going to make a phone call to the city and find out. Uh, no, we haven't got anything like that. So just that fundamental piece, it's not that you're being rude to people at the door, but you're going to check for uh, credentials, even for officers. And we've had scams where people personate police officers. You say, well, I'm just going to make a call to dispatch and confirm that you are who you say you are. I would never have a problem with that because I'm wearing my badge number and all the rest. Uh, they'll phone communications. Yes, this officer on the call. Yes, this officer exists versus, and we can check. No, we have no officer by that name in our database. Oh, so it's really that verification piece, and uh, you're not being rude to somebody, and you figure if I'm doing my job, public health or whoever else, CRA is doing their job, they wouldn't take uh, exception to you verifying who they are. It's just one of those fundamental steps. Just it, it, And that was the advice that, uh, that Dave Place gave when he was on here, of course. It's just, he says, if it's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Always just check. And uh, whether it's somebody calling from the bank that says, hey, we need your bank account number to verify something. And I guess one of the other scams that he's uh, hearing a lot about now are uh, uh, this, allegedly a bank call and saying, look, it, we're afraid one of our employees might be dipping in the till here. Uh, we need to access your account to see if they're doing it. No, no, they don't do that. That's right. That's in the movies. That's not in real life. But people fall for it. That's why they keep doing this stuff. And you raised a good point about that's too good to be true. I don't know through your life experience, uh, but I'm not routinely being stopped by money or by people who are giving me free money all the time or free access to. Well, I've got $2 million in account. I can't access it, but you give me 3000 bucks, and then we'll be able to access it. Yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. Except that guy in Nigeria. Well, yeah, that's, he's, he's legit. That's the routine. One, he's right? legit, yeah. Yes. Uh, sure. Uh, 645-3221, star 9900. Quick email from Phil says, I notice more and more often when I'm stopped at red lights, the uh, driver in front of me is texting. 
Uh, when the light turns green, they're still texting and they're holding up traffic. What should we do in situations like that? What do you, what do police do about situations? Yeah, and we do have a, a hotline that you can call for those type of things. Again, it's it's not usually prosecutable, but we can phone if you get the license plate, phone the person, have a conversation with them, tell them you know this has been observed, and the. You know, the other drivers observing this is quite right. It's not just when you're stopped. Like if you pull off the roadway and you're going to use your device, it's in park. That's one thing. If you're actively driving and you say the stoplight. So think about all the things that can change in the span of 20 seconds at an intersection if your head is down. Whether it's pedestrians coming up in your space, people on bicycles, the situation has changed in terms of oncoming traffic or other traffic that's going on. So... You know, when you're talking about texting, well, I wasn't really driving. Yes, you are. You're still actively involved. You have to watch the intersection and what's going on. It's just, uh, it makes sense. I've told him, Klaus Wagner's into the building here because he, yeah. he comes on our program and he's on our brother station, Y108, here, uh, of course, on a regular basis uh, with Ask a Cop. And, and I said, look, I said, every day when I drive home, I, I go up the hill here and along golf links uh, back to our neighborhood, I see five, at least five, every day. Uh, and they, a lot of them, is, as Phil's uh, email said, they're stopped at a light, and they yeah. figure, oh, I'm not moving the vehicle, so it's okay. I'm, it's, I'm not breaking any laws. Yeah, you are. Well, and Phil's described what happened, right? The light turns green. People are expecting to go. This person's not because they're consumed with their attention otherwise, and it creates problems. And, you know, the guy who's eighth in line waiting to make the turn thinking, why am I waiting? And uh, it's it causes a ripple effect, and the person's not participating in what they need to be doing. They're driving a vehicle that weighs X amount of pounds. You need to be responsible behind that vehicle. And if you got to stop over and text, pull over into a parking lot, put it in park, and then you can do it. If it's that important. If it's that important. And, and for the clowns that are driving and texting at the same time, by the way, you're not fooling anybody because you usually are driving more slowly and you're weaving. Uh, and you're you can down. tell. If, I, if you're behind somebody who's texting, you know what they're doing. Right. You can tell. Uh, back to phone calls for uh, Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Alec, thanks for holding on. You're next on the program. Hi, Alex. Hello. Go ahead, Alex. Hi, uh Yes, uh, just a, a quick uh, question. Or, or, uh, I think it's a great idea that uh, we have those uh, radar uh, indicating signs, like uh, beside the stadium and on Lawrence Road, uh, tells you how fast you're going. Uh, the confusion I have is I don't have a car that's calibrated uh, like the police cars, and I was wondering if uh, uh, could these signs be calibrated because every sign is different compared to what I'm driving. And when I'm on the highway, I don't know if I'm going too fast or too slow because I'm calibrated by some sign that's uh, your radar signs. I think it's a great idea. And number two is, uh, back in the 60s when I got my driver's license, I was able to drive from Dundas to Stony Creek without hitting a red light as provided I do the speed limit. I can't do that now. Uh, what happened to that system from the Pan Am game? So it's supposed to give us good traffic. And uh, thirdly is thank you for your service. Well, thank you. Well, Thanks, sir. I'll let you go and let uh, the chief answer that on the air. Thanks a lot for the call, Alex. Yeah, so in terms of um, the traffic integration, I'll go to uh, your second item, which is timing of lights. That is a city traffic responsibility. And I do know that, you know, my understanding of the history was, was really to get the uh, employees from Stelco and DeFasco at the time, both into uh, work and from work at those times of days. And we were one of the first cities, I believe in Canada, to actually have timed lights. Uh, I know that with some of the changes in the flow of traffic, one ways to two ways, all those type of things. I know along Main Street, you can, if you're doing the speed limit, as you say, you can still uh, get through the city fairly quickly. But some of those lights have 
have changed as a result of the changes, but that's regulated by city traffic. Relative to the radar signs that are posted, my understanding would be they'd be accurate because radar works under a certain system. Uh, it's called a hypotenuse error, but if you're approaching at a different angle, sometimes you can get errors in the speed, but fundamentally if you're on a straight roadway and the radar device is pointed appropriately, the speed will be accurate. Uh, calibration of your vehicle, if you change the tire size, rim size, some of those other things can affect your speedometer. But my understanding is, you know, mechanics do have capability to make sure that uh, the calibration is accurate uh, relative to the deployment of those devices and whether the radars are different. I can't see fundamentally um, from the technology that'd be different, but that's something, again, that you'd have to check with, uh, with City Hall. Obviously, when we operate radar, which we still have a couple of instruments, but not as many. It's largely uh, LIDAR, which is the laser equipment, which is, uh, in my view, far more accurate, and you can get them at a, a greater distance in terms of uh, measuring the speed. Uh, so I don't know the answer to the first question. You'd have to take that up with city traffic. Second question, again, that's city traffic. Uh, but again, I, we're, I don't think you'll see it uh, where you go from Dundas to Stony Creek without touching the brakes all the way through the city at 50K. Appreciate the call. Listen, a couple of quick things I want to jump in here, too. Uh, my commentary this morning was uh, about, uh, well, the latest story, of course, about a, a member of Hamilton Police Services has further charges about an incident. Uh, series of incidents in 2015, uh, and I don't want to talk about the charges. And I know mm-hmm. you can't because yeah. that's that's Before know, the going through the system. Yeah. But uh, this officer, like so many others, uh, is now under paid suspension. And this is, I, I know, an issue that's near and dear to you. It was for former Chief DeCare as well. Uh, and I commented about this at 8:10 this morning, and it's on our blog at uh, on the Bill Kelly Show page. That it's, I'm, I'm calling on the province to end this whole system. Ontario is the only province in the country that still has mandatory paid suspensions for police services. Every other province has found a better way to do this. Uh, you've been very strong and very uh, vocal about uh, the need for change here, too. Let's talk about that. Yeah, we continue to advocate through our ministry, MCSCS, which is the Ministry of Correctional Services and Community Safety, uh, for changes to the Police Services Act that govern uh, suspension with or without pay. Uh, so the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police continue to have those discussions. As you know, and you mentioned, Bill, we've, um, through Chief DeCare and also uh, Acting Deputy Chief Nancy Goods-Ritchie, uh, she wrote the white paper that was presented to OACP that advanced that case, and even our corporate counsel has been involved through the Police Legal Advisors Committee uh, with those negotiations. And, of course, uh, the ministry is reaching out to all the involved participants, being uh, the officers themselves, the associations, the Chiefs of Police representing services, police services boards, and our board has been very vocal on this particular through Chair Ferguson. Uh, We are in support of suspension without pay under certain circumstances and with certain guarantees because we also understand. That's an important element because I know some of the feedback I've received on my commentary is you can't do that. That's not fair. The the, the province, uh, well, what you are asking for, the Chiefs of Police, is not to eliminate paid uh, suspensions. It's to have this done on a case-by-case basis. Correct. And the chief, the, the local chief, in other words, or, or a body of, or some sort of a, a board would actually have the say on that. It's right now it's just automatic. You, okay, you, you're suspended, you still get paid. That's in other provinces and the other nine provinces right now, it, there's a, a there's a process that goes that happens. Let's talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I, I, I know it changes from province to province. It, it does in the criteria. So really what we're uh, advocating for is, yes, not in all cases. Uh, yes, the chief will have to provide the reasons as to why they believe uh, that the offense and the nature of the conduct, either under, uh, and this is contentious, under the Police Services Act or criminal code offense, is egregious enough that we need to suspend without pay. And we know the sentiment from the taxpayers who are saying some of these cases go on for five or six years, you don't have resolution, and then they're found guilty and they've been paid in the interim. Uh, but now the guarantees towards the presumption of innocence, we agree with that. And there would be certain guarantees that if the person were found innocent, uh, that it's reimbursed and, uh, you know, get into benefits and all those type of things. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a complicated area. Uh, but to your point, other provinces have the option with proper determination of why the suspension without pay should occur. And uh, we believe it's the interest both of the taxpayers um, and ourselves that in certain cases where it's egregious enough conduct that you would suspend without pay. But that's a key element to this right now. There is still oversight in those other processes and yes. those other provinces. It's not like the chief says, I don't like that officer. You're suspended without pay. Uh, they, right. they have to basically have, have a burden of proof to suggest, here's why I think this individual should be suspe- suspended without pay. Yeah, correct. It's not just a subjective determination. You have to look at what the evidence is, the nature of the conduct. And then even in those discussions that are currently going on, there's appeal processes built sure. in there as well, so that you don't just have <clears throat> you know, one chief acting one way and other chiefs acting a different way. It has a criteria, it has an appeal process, it has guarantees. And it's in place in the other nine provinces, and it's working beautifully, uh, and the Ontario's just really got to get their act together. That's really what this comes down to. Now, very quickly, one of the areas of concern when we talked about public safety and about perceptions of safety, Chief, uh, a little while ago, uh, and it came up with a couple of different uh, emails that we received in this, was what about all these home break-ins? And, and I want to dovetail that into Project Phoenix yeah. uh, that uh, that you had a, a press conference, a media conference for a little bit ago. Uh, and, and I think what this proves is there may not be immediate response to some of the concerns about neighborhoods, about crack houses, about some of the stuff that's going on with break-ins. It takes a long time to, to build a case and to actually uh, gather evidence about this. But Project Phoenix, I think, is a classic example of police getting it done and getting it right. Yeah, and we were looking at the home invasion type robberies. We're looking at the link between um, guns, drugs, money, the reasons why people were doing those break-ins. And, and quite often, and we've said it, it's often related to drugs. Uh, so in this case, it was 80 people that were arrested, one youth, 79 adults, all Hamilton residents. Um, 412 offenses. Uh, we seized cocaine, fentanyl, heroin, methamphetamine, MDMA, marijuana, plants, and the firearms recovered as well is two handguns, three shotguns, two were shot sawed off, and two rifles. Um, you know, $250,000 in currency, but they're also conducted energy weapons, brass knuckles, illegal knives. Uh, we certainly, I believe, made the case for these things are linked. We know the propensity for violence and the increase when you're dealing with drugs and money. And really, in a sense, we're targeting the mid-level dealers here. Not that we're not interested in the high-level dealers as well, uh, but usually it's an avenue into those other areas. Uh, But this was having an impact in our community. And we've seen a change in those kind of um, home invasion styles in the interim. And certainly the message, I think, went out to at least 
80 people and all their associates that were focusing on this. And this really is a public safety concern because it's not so much, um, and in many cases it's targeted, yes, but if uh, these people are not particularly uh, safety conscious about where the stray rounds go or if they get the wrong address, uh, all the things that happen. So we're certainly alive to that issue and uh, implemented this in response to that. And I think you see the nature of it. So, for example, um, in terms of fentanyl seizures, specifically for powdered fentanyl, uh, 378 grams of fentanyl. And as we know, um, you know, you're seeing emergence of things like it's called popcorn, which is a mix of heroin and fentanyl. So there's an appetite, so to speak, even though we've got the opioid crisis where things are being laced with fentanyl. In some cases, uh, the consumers of those drugs are actually looking for a heroin fentanyl mix. So when you, you know, you seize those type of proportions and for, you know, even cocaine powder, 1,700 grams with a street value of or $224,000. Uh, these are significant seizures of drugs in our community. So, you know, there's a kind of the uh, statement that, well, no, it's just users who are using them. There's no harm more globally. We know there is. We know that the violence is related to this. There's money in this business. Uh, not everybody who's peddling this stuff is using it. And some people are just specifically interested in money and the tactics they use with violence. Well, we just don't support that. General public doesn't support it. And it's a public safety issue. Got about a minute left here. We did a program about uh, uh, opioids and, and addiction. Of course, we did a five-part series and Deputy Chief Kinsella was part of that. Yep. Uh, as we talked about how police services are dealing with this. The stats that we've seen on this and, and about uh, about overuse and over-medication uh, often dealt with prescription elements of this. You deal with the other side of that. Uh, that's the street drugs and, mm -hmm. and people like with the fentanyl and carfentanyl and the mixes, which can be toxic and deadly mixes as well. Are, are, you, are you putting a dent in that? Um, I think it's a it's a multiple prong approach, and I know that uh, you know there was a recent report from the medical community talking about smaller doses going out through yeah. the doctors. That's important. Also, the recognition that uh, if they withdraw them from a very addictive drug, there has to be a plan in place to do so. And we know from, I just saw a presentation by an OPP officer who's in that area, is that often they will start on prescriptions and then end up having to go to oxycodone or other uh, illicit opioids because they get addicted because they originally had a back injury yeah, or And if the doctor won't give it to them, they're going to go somewhere else. Well, the doctor's trying to be responsible to wean them off of it. Um, so, yeah, there has to be a deliberate plan, not just from us, and we're seeing that with kind of the opioid roundtable. We have multiple agencies saying, well, I can do this part for this. I can do this part for that. Um, but we also know that the importation of uh, some of these deadly uh, chemicals, uh, they're not being regulated. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gertz, uh, thanks as always. Great to see you again. Thank uh, you, enjoy Bill. the rest of the summer, such as it is, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs> you too. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We have been uh, talking over the last couple of weeks on the program here about health care funding, uh, and I'm talking about the the physical bricks and mortars sort of idea. There's a lot that needs to be done here when we look at uh, the system in which we're uh, placing our, our lives, basically, when it comes to health care here in the province of Ontario. And I know that there's a review, of course, about uh, retirement homes, and that's a, a topic that we're going to get into in more detail. But Ontario, we found out now, is investing in four community health facilities for crucial infrastructure projects, mm -hmm. uh, like and this is this is maybe a little bit boring, except unless you're working or living in one of those, or you have a loved one in one of these things. It's extremely important for this kind of investment. Ted McBeacon, the MPP for Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, Westdale, 
and uh, parliamentary secretary for the the premier is uh, with us here in studio to talk about this. Good to see you again, Ted. Yeah, good to be back, Bill. Uh, healthcare is such a broad topic, and uh, as you've uh, hinted, uh, you know sometimes small investments. Uh, strategically placed can be really helpful. Well, I mean, you've uh, been to a few ribbon cuttings in the last couple of weeks to do that. I mean, I, I guess the most notable one, of course, was Joe Brandt uh, in Burlington. I know you were instrumental in, in creating funding for much-needed uh, improvements to that facility, and, and uh, uh, that got underway, of course, with the addition that uh, that finally had their opening, and, of course, and some of the other transitions that are going on. Uh, and we talk an awful lot, Ted, about, uh, about facilities and doctors, and that's a, such a key part of this, but the bricks and mortar, the, the the physical buildings in which healthcare delivery is is actually taking place is an important part of this too, and and that, let's face it, past governments sometimes have overlooked this. Well, you know, four hundred million for Joe Brandt, uh, one point two billion for the new regional uh, mental health uh, facility. I mean, it goes on, and we've, we've I think thirteen major restructuring. Uh, uh, rebuilding uh, programs in the nine hospitals uh, located locally. So over the years, there's been tremendous investments. Well, I mean, if you want to look at the Hamilton area specifically, uh, just about every hospital that we've talked about here has gone through a, a, a major re- renaissance. I mean, from St. Joe's, of course, you mentioned the Mental mm-hmm. Health Center, but also uh, St. Joe's itself, uh, the General Hospital, yep. uh, St. Joe's. Out, there's so many. There's a lot of work going on. And of course, the Jurovinsky Center yep. up on Hamilton Mountain, both the Cancer Center, of course, and, and the hospital itself, the primary care facility right now, are total redos. Uh, well, let's talk about this announcement, though, and about some of these community health facilities and the funding that's available, being made available now. Well, you know, I think there are, are several, and they're uh, relatively uh, small amounts. Uh, with, uh, but they carry a big punch. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, I think there were seven or eight projects funded funded in the uh, uh, wind catchment uh, area. And they're for things like, uh, you know, replacing windows, uh, making sure there's uh, adequate fire escapes, uh, you know, that, uh, that kind of thing. Water systems that have gone uh, wonky, you know, being fixed. Uh, you know the basics that you know as your as a homeowner, Bill. You know that sometimes uh, you've got to make some investments just to to keep the value of your place and the functionality of your place going, and that's what these funds are. Hands up, anybody who's listening right now who's had to have their uh, their shingles done, the re-roofing. Uh, you know, and you figure, ah, oh, who even thinks about that stuff? Absolutely. Until all of a sudden somebody comes along and says, uh, oh, by the way, you know, those twenty-five-year shingles, they're really about 10, 12 years. You need yeah. to get those fixed. Twelve thousand dollars later. You are you kidding? If you're lucky, twelve thousand yeah. bucks. That's sometimes the estimate's twelve thousand bucks. The fact is, it can be very, very expensive. And windows replacement, all of that stuff going on, and and we've talked about some of the great work that's gone on with hospitals and the investment that you've made in this. But I mean, there are a lot more facilities that we're talking about here right now, and a lot of these buildings are old and tired. Well, they're hospitals, and then there are long-term care facilities. Uh, there are palliative care centers that. Uh, our government is funding 12 new palliative care centers. Uh, yeah, as Mother Teresa said, everyone deserves to be treated like an angel once before they leave this place, you know. And uh, end of life, I mean, we, we test uh, newborns, uh, 54 different uh, tests uh, around diseases and genetic uh, uh, difficulties. Uh, we need to be investing, I think I said this on your show once before, an equal amount of money around, uh, you know, our aging population. Although people are living longer, they're healthier, they're, they're richer, um, many. 
some have some real challenges, and we need so we have a secret obligation to respond to that. Well, let's talk about that because uh, the, the discussion has always been around hospitals, and I, and I guess maybe because that's the first point of contact for an awful lot of people when yep. you're ill or when you've been injured you end up in a hospital. Yep. Uh, but that's not always the best place for people to go when they're recovering, or as you say, especially when they're in their later years. Uh, and and the, what we've looked for here is what are the other pieces of that puzzle? Uh, you know, one of the reasons that people have spent a long time waiting in, in emergency rooms is because there are no beds available upstairs. One of the reasons there are no beds available is because there are not enough long-term care spaces, right. uh, uh, not enough hospice space, things of yeah. that nature. Talk to us about what the government's doing there. Well, we're doing a lot, uh, actually. Uh, about 14% of the uh, uh, beds in Hamilton hospitals are occupied by uh, somebody who should be uh, receiving uh, care outside of the facility. And uh, so we're, uh, we've ramped up uh, home care uh, visits. Uh, you know, you hear about uh, 4,000 West nurses uh, in hospitals. I don't know if that's an accurate figure or not. Hospital boards make those kinds of d- decisions. But overall in Ontario, there are about 7,000 more nurses. And why? Well, because they're working in long-term care facilities. They're doing more home visitations. Uh, we're making changes around the CCAC and the wind coming together to provide better better yeah, care. Talk to me about that. You've got a big, a huge background in that yeah. uh, with CCAC. Going back even when you were on local council, municipal council, of course, uh, when you were working on the, the Health and Social Service Committee, uh, the, that, that's when the, this whole process was started. And I know that you you, you had an awful in, uh, great interest in what was going on there. Now it's being modified. Talk to us about exactly what you're looking to do here. Well, and I've been really pushing uh, the minister. You and I both sat on the District yeah, Health Council, which uh, was the precursor to the Lynn years abs- ago. Absolutely. And we know that, uh, you know, we know that uh, people want to age in place. And, uh, um, you know, so we, we, we want to do everything we can to enable that to happen. Um, and, uh, you, you know, polls show that about 90% of people, even, even when they're palliative, uh, say, I want to be at home um, surrounded by the people I love and, uh, and people who love me, right? Getting the kind of home care. I don't want to be in a hospital my last days unless I absolutely have to be. Uh, so palliative care centers, end-of-life centers, uh, um, you know, uh, using um, uh, some of the... Uh, uh, facilities, uh, St. Joe, Joe's Ville is a good example where they've been able to uh, um, create a situation where some of the floors that weren't occupied are now being uh, redone and, and occupied by people who need that kind of space. So the the alternative level of care beds uh, figure has come down from, you know, the low 20s to 13, 14%. needs to come down further. So one of the, one of the projects we're currently looking at, I was... Uh, meeting with health sciences people a couple times recently and the minister, is to, um, uh, to build more uh, transition spaces. Uh, the thought uh, came up that if we could do something close to a hospital and have the hospital have an affinity with the, uh, you know, small place, 300 square feet, you know, built to serve uh, o- older folk, uh, you know, with the caveat that if they had a medical need, uh, the hospital would have a formal connection, could get in there and take care of it. And if we could do that at 60 bucks a day instead of, uh, you know, $143 a day, it saves the, the, the system money. It gives people a place to transition from while we're or they're trying to locate what 
which of the long-term care facilities they might want to access. But you just nailed a, a very, very important problem, and we talked about that. I did a commentary about that a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact. And you saw the article, Ted, in the Toronto Star, and it was about it was about seniors' residences and, and yeah. the cost. And Now, that's a GTA number, but they were in some cases talking about $5,000 a month yeah. uh, to live. Now, those are, those are private sector enterprises. Yeah. Those aren't run by the government. But yeah. uh, it is problematic, obviously, for an awful lot of people. And that doesn't mean it's 5000 bucks everywhere, but but it can be onerous like that. And, and uh, for those that do need that level of care and may not have those family support services at home, they may not have another option. But, uh, boy, where do they find the money? Now, yep. I, and the other side of that coin is you don't want province to say, okay, we're going to step in and we're going to just you know dump a bunch of regulations on you. But there has to be some oversight. Well, I think the times are changing. Uh, you know, many of the folk who uh, were heading into the kind of retirement home or retirement space, not long-term care space, um, uh, are, are often arriving with greater needs than ever before. You know, some have uh, adult onset dementia, what have you. Uh, you know, there's a level of care that isn't there. Uh, and and they're uh, arguably... Uh, um, perhaps more suited for another kind of facility. So we need to, we need to be looking at that. Uh, it's an all-encompassing thing too. And you know, I'm, as you know, uh, Bill, I'm doing some work on rural poverty on behalf of the mm-hmm. premier touring the province. We'll be up in Huron, Bruce uh, next week uh, with the United Way doing a big, uh, big consult up there. And uh, you know, poverty isn't just a matter of basic income pilot or whatever. It's, uh, it has to do with uh, you know your access to. Um, uh, to housing, right? To do with access to the kinds of opportunities you might have around retraining, right? All of that together, all of that together, uh, you know, there's, uh, I've heard you refer to them on the air as a social determinants of health. Sure. You know, you house somebody and suddenly uh, they're not homeless. They don't have encounters, uh, negative encounters with the law. They're not going to the hospital as they were up in Sudbury, the 10 um, cr- chronically homeless uh, persons we studied, uh, 1.2 nights uh, a week, um, you know, it, it becomes, uh, you know, uh, they get good service, but at a, at a great cost. So we have to build in uh, some mechanisms to handle that. And St. Joe's Hospital uh, here in town is doing the outpatient uh, consultation, which is uh, they've got a team that's in the community working with people. So you don't have to come into the hospital. They don't have to show up at emergency. Things like uh, the family health teams are pivotal. Even the urgent care centers, you know, are, are pivotal too to uh, to uh, helping people avoid going into the hospital. But with that, and, and you get into delivery of service, you get into evaluation as to what kind of services those people are going to need. And and some would point to to the previous Lynn system and say, well, that's where the shortfall was. Uh, that there were people falling through the cracks. Uh, and as a result, I know from the political level, some uh, people at uh, Queen's Park or who aspired to be at Queen's Park were saying, well, let's just scrap the lens. Oh, yeah. Well, you have, still have to have local oversight. Yeah. You, you can't have somebody in an office at Queen's Park dictating how provinces or health care is going to be delivered in Hamilton and Sudbury and Ottawa because it's going to be different in other areas. So those local entities need yeah. to be there. But you've, they've got to have the services and, and be able yeah. to point to say, okay, that person needs this. Now yeah. here's where you go. Well, that's exactly what's happening. The, when, it, when it's working at its best and, uh, you know, is, is uh, doing some science-based, making science-based uh, evaluations about how to, to best deliver care, patient-first care, 
Um, uh, the uh, combination of the CCACs now with the win, I'm a big proponent of that. I was never particularly fond of the CCAC and some of the bureaucracy around that that I think uh, may have had the impact in some cases of being detrimental to a patient. Uh, now the, the well, you heard some of those stories because I oh. certainly did on this show, where people would say, "Look, they're setting up roadblocks. They're not helping." Oh, me. oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's kind of like social housing. I, I said to people when I was minister of housing, um, uh, you know, acquire, sometimes acquiring uh, uh, after waiting on the list for four years, five years, whatever, uh, is like going to jail. If you get a job offer in uh, Whitby and you go down and uh, you leave your place that doesn't work out, you can't come back because you've you've yielded your spot. And uh, you got, you're on another wait list down in Whitby to get social housing. So I, I've been arguing, and our government is making some moves here. Uh, we're piloting a, a, a transitional housing allowance for women uh, escaping domestic violence. You know, extra money so they don't have to go to a wait list. They can actually uh, compete in the marketplace. I think eventually we're going to need to get to a place where we have a portable uh, housing credit uh, for vulnerable folk that... Uh, Will will release us and them from having to play this bureaucratic game, and and in many cases very detrimentally because they can never move they can never move forward from where they're at. Well, because if they, they do try to move, they go back to square one. They lose their place. It's what a bizarre system. Yeah, it's and, and that's that's obviously part of that solution is to make yeah. it portable to say, look at if you want to leave Hamilton and go to Guelph, for instance, that that grant goes with you. That that help well, goes with you. That's part of the long term uh, housing strategy that I was pleased to introduce when I was minister. And we've also introduced some other stuff there, the inclusive zoning uh, uh, requirements for municipalities. Uh, I, we were up in Brantford the other night at a, a forum on social housing and uh, basic income, and, and people were saying, well, what's the province doing? And I said, well, we, we just changed the municipal law so that councils can partner with the development sector who aren't building the kinds of places low-income people need because they can't make any money doing it. We need to find a way a partner. You can waive development charges. You can waive taxes. Uh, we, we're requiring every municipality now to have a bylaw around what percentage of uh, of all of the housing in their uh, municipality uh, is going to be made up of secondary units. These are practical things that we can do that can draw the development sector in to work with municipalities and those concerned about the broad-based poverty and health care issues. Well, because you've got to get them in here. I mean, the, the province, the municipality, they can't build everything. They can't build houses. You've got to get private sector buy-in to do this, Absolutely. and you've got to make it at least appealing to them. I yep. mean, they're not going to make money hand over fist, yep. but you know, I've talked to a number of them that are saying, look, we can't lose our shirts over this either. And you use the point of, of, of people that are in abusive situations. Uh, first of all, we don't have enough space right now in, in, in some of the facilities to house them when they finally make that decision to break away. But even for those who do find spaces, eventually they're going to have to find housing. Yeah. And, and the, the shortage there is, is, is critical. Well, part of it, it can be regulatory, too. Uh, when I was a Minister of Housing and co-chaired the expert panel on homelessness bill, there was a young woman, very articulate woman, who was in a transition house. And uh, she just had uh, everything going for her. I said, well, what, what, what happens to you now? She says, well, this is on a Tuesday. She said, I'll be homeless on Friday. And I said, well, you're a remarkable story. Why are you going to be homeless on Friday? She said, because your government has a regulation that nobody can stay in a transition home for longer than 12 months. Mm -hmm. So I would be homeless. So I looked at my deputy minister. I said, deputy, is that true? She said, yeah, it's true, minister. I said, well, do we need a law to change the law to do that, or is that just a regulation? She said, you can do a regulation tomorrow. So I looked at the young woman. I said, done. So we changed it from one year to two years. 
I don't know exactly how many people that's helping, but that's an example of I would think a considerable number. What can happen when you actually listen to people yeah. and hear what they're saying to you? Ted, always a pleasure to have you in here. Uh, thanks so much for the update on this, and I know that we'll be in touch about a number of these other issues, too. Great to see you again. Good to see you, too, Bill. MPP Ted McBeacon. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.